what happens when the world of work doesn't offer what you're looking for. For those with the entrepreneurial spirit, they start their own businesses. But some start a business not because they want to, but because they feel there is no other option. Meet Brittany Berger. She's on a unique mission to help neurodivergent individuals work smarter, not harder, whether a business owner or not. Brittany believes that the traditional rules of productivity and work that people learn are inaccessible for many. She speaks candidly about her neurodivergent brain and how she has leveraged it in her business to be more productive and focused. If you haven't heard of the term neurodivergent, you're not alone. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Small But Mighty Agency Podcast. If you're a creative consultant or agency owner who wants to know what the roller coaster ride really looks like to grow your business from one to many, you're in the right place. My guest and I pull back the curtains on the realities of growing and running agencies of different sizes and what it takes to build a team. And if you're anything like me, you want more than the highlight reel. You want to learn from the mistakes of others so that you can stop short of making the same mistakes. I'm your host, Audrey Joy Kwan. I spend my days as a coach and consultant to multiple six and seven figure agency owners. For the last seven years, I've been behind the scenes helping people grow, lead, and operate small but mighty agencies. Here at the Small But Mighty Agency podcast, we'll uncover what works and equally as important what didn't work to get these business owners to where they are today. In this episode, we hear the word neurodivergent and we don't arrive at the definition until later. For more context to this episode that you're about to hear, neurodivergent is defined as deferring a mental or neurological function from what is considered typical or normal. And as I say the word normal, I'm air quoting it because the term normal is highly subjective. In this interview, you'll hear Brittany's candidness about living with chronic illness and having ADHD and autism while running two businesses. She shares how she balances her content strategy business and takes her lived experience as a neurodivergent business owner to lead her work brighter community. Hi, Brittany. I am excited to have you here because today we are talking about hustle culture for entrepreneurs. And I know that you are passionate about this topic. Before we get any deeper, tell us about what you do. You have two businesses, so please share about both businesses. Sure. So I am the founder of WorkBrighter.co and a content strategist and consultant at BrittanyBurger.com. WorkBrighter is a digital media company and community that is helping people escape the hustle culture mentality and find a better balance between work, play, and rest. And what I like to say is that it is about doing more than working smarter. And so it's kind of like work smarter plus. And then BrittanyBurger.com is actually about taking a lot of the mindsets and principles in WorkBrighter and applying them specifically to content marketing, which is where I had a decades-long career before I started WorkBrighter. I want to talk about hustle culture and what is your definition of hustle culture? Sure. So I like to look at hustle culture as kind of internalized capitalism and the glorification of overwork and productivity above all else. So I like to say we cannot escape capitalism, but we can stop glorifying it. And uh, so I like to say that working brighter is part of that. And I also really look at hustle culture as, like I said before, prizing the amount of work put in over the amount of results gotten, because we really glorify 
effort and just, you know, putting in the hours and stuff like that, regardless of how effective that was. It also plays a lot on survivorship bias, where the harder you work, the more you deserve something, uh, regardless of the work. And yeah, it just produces a lot of really efficient, harmful and dangerous uh, work practices. Yeah, I like what you just said there in terms of uh, the connection between working harder and the amount of results that you get and that they're not always interconnected. Just because you plug, you know, 18 hours a day in doesn't mean that you're going to get that extra, extra result that comes from working harder. And that in fact, sometimes leaning back on the amount of time that you spend working creates greater results. Because I personally have found that when I am working on a project and I am hitting the top of like, I would say where my brain, the maximum capacity in my brain, and I'm trying to force myself through it, that I'm not even producing my best work, in which case I'm not getting top results, right? The best results that I want. And if I just lean back and acknowledge that for myself, that, okay, my brain's at capacity right now. I got to take a break, take a break go back to the next day. And when I come back at it with a fresh brain, I'm producing even better results. Exactly. One of the things that I am very big on is recognizing the point of diminishing returns for different activities. Love that word. Yeah. That whole concept is fascinating to me, especially with the concept of putting in work. Like I think the first time I really realized how much overworking kind of exploits that theory is when I used to, you know, write, uh, write content at my day job, and I would be so, so tired, and it would take me something like three hours to write 2000 words or something like that. But if I took one hour to take a break, it would then take me like an hour and a half to write that same amount of words. So even with the break built in, it still took less time to get the work done, even including the break time. And I think this lends well into a question that I have for you. What are some fears that you think keep entrepreneurs stuck in this hustle culture? I think that we've just really been ingrained to think of success and career growth and entrepreneurship in really, really narrow ways. Um, So the way people define success in entrepreneurship just kind of sets them up to never achieve it. Kind of the goalposts are always moving. We're kind of always trying to scale and grow faster. But since we're also ignoring the point of diminishing returns, we're also focusing on like the new and the shiny over maintaining the stuff we've already done. We kind of we self-sabotage in a lot of ways uh, because of these just untrue mindsets that the whole world is set up around. Yeah. Do you find that the unicorn stories out there also contribute to this hustle culture? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think that they're more a product of it than the cause. Um, So I think that because hustle culture glorifies the amount of effort put in or the amount of confidence someone has or what Susan Cain calls the extrovert ideal, that kind of created the environment for these these billion, these you know billion dollar stories and these exceptions to the rules. So I think that yeah, they definitely they feed off of each other. But um, I definitely think I've been trying to kind of trace the roots of hustle culture, and it definitely goes much further back than 
than like the kind of current tech startup entrepreneurship culture. I want to take a step back here and probably define the unicorn story so that uh, yeah. the people listening to know what we're talking about. I, I jumped in and said unicorn story, but I, I do want to define that. And these are the stories of people entering a space and within two years making millions, if not billions of dollars, right? And I think that type of story has many entrepreneurs thinking that um, if someone did it in two years, then how they did it was, you know, work endlessly. And when I say endlessly, you know, not sleep basically to get to where they are, right? And without doing that, that they can't get to where they are. And for me, I don't like that. That to me isn't realistic. I, I think that I think that you don't have to be the entrepreneur who has to give up your health and your sanity to achieve the goals. And I think personally, I believe that slow and sustainable is a much happier path to take than one where you reach the end. Maybe it is two years. Look back and say to yourself, I never want to do that again. I'd rather enjoy this journey than be the person who's in the journey, gets it and and is completely burnt out and doesn't want to be part of building anything new again or looks at building anything new as this crazy space that only the insane take part in. Yeah, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I didn't get very far down the hustle culture path before realizing that like, oh, I don't want this and actually moving off of it. And then also not just moving off of it, but zooming out. I think that one thing that Work Brighter does differently from a lot of other brands focused on productivity and self-care is really encouraging people to take a big picture view at like the societal and political stuff involved in hustle culture as well. And there are just so many people in the entrepreneurship area of hustle culture where they kind of have this story of like a horrible day job that was, you know, totally inaccessible or something like that. You know, like as someone with chronic illness and uh, neurodivergence, I hear a lot about other entrepreneurs who, um, you know, like they had a boss who wouldn't accommodate their ADHD or something, but, you know, they started their business. And so now their life is fabulous. Whereas... That's just a more individualistic view than I try to take it work brighter. I did that. But then I also realized that shouldn't be a situation that other people are in. And so I'm trying to change the broader work because not everyone wants to start a business. Um, There are so many people that are entrepreneurs because they have to be and they have no other option because they are unemployable for a lot of messed up reasons. And it Mm -hmm. would just be great if the people starting businesses did so because they wanted to and not because they didn't feel there was another option. Can you tell us a bit more about the ethos of Work Brighter? Sure. So it is based on the ethos that, you know, the traditional rules of productivity and working that we've been taught, uh, what I like to call the rules of working smarter, uh, they were, again, they were completely inaccessible for so many people. They were written for a workforce in what, the 1940s or 1950s, that most of us would have been unemployable in that workforce for a variety of reasons that still show up today. You know, like I probably wouldn't even have been allowed to be living free on my own back then. I would have been in an institution. And so why should I be following those rules of work that were written explicitly to exclude me? 
And so a lot of rules around productivity and work, they just assume able-bodiedness. They assume that you're neurotypical. They assume that you have a wife that handles basically all of your non-work responsibilities for you. And that's just not the reality anymore. Uh, and so the days of working smarter, I think, are, are limited. They only work for a select few, and we need more options. Brittany, would you mind sharing a bit about your challenges, your personal challenges? Sure. So for me, um, it was always kind of struggling to try to keep up with everyone else working around me. Um, like I used to work ridiculous hours, but then still feel like I wasn't actually getting much more done than my coworkers. And I can see now that a lot of that is because they were these neurotypical employees and they didn't have, you know, the friction in their workday that I did. And so it was taking me twice as long to get the same amount of work done due to my autism and ADHD. But then because of my chronic illness, I couldn't handle overworking that much for very long without burning out and getting severely sick. And so I would just kind of be in that cycle of getting really sick every few months, resting just enough to get back to work and then starting to hustle, hustle, hustle all over again uh, until 2017, which was when I really started taking my health seriously. Thank you so much for being transparent about the challenges that brought you to creating Work Brighter. I think what you're identifying is that the typical workplace doesn't accommodate the differences in how we work and how our brains are made. You mentioned that you have ADHD. With that said, can you please share more about that? Uh, more and more, I'm hearing about entrepreneurs with ADHD. And for those who are not familiar, this can give them an understanding of how that impacts work. Sure. So ADHD really, I feel like is being, is undergoing an evolution in how we look at it right now. I think for the better. When I was diagnosed, it was very difficult to get a diagnosis, say a decade ago, because I was not very like, I did not look hyperactive to someone. The way that I would try to describe it to my parents when I was a kid was like, my body's not hyperactive, but my brain is. And so it's really less about the external hyperness or whatever than it is your ability to regulate your focus, your attention, and even your emotions. And then that is kind of amplified even further by um, I am autistic too. And then I also, this doesn't, I don't think affects my personal day-to-day -day as much, but also in that cluster of neurodivergence is OCD, which I also have. So I'm just like as neurodivergent as they come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it just, it was so hard for me to regulate my, my focus and my attention and my energy when I was kind of unaware of all of that. And so it would just, it would just be so hard to get through the day and I wouldn't be able to do it very many times in a row without burning out. How do you now prioritize your work in a given week? Like, how does your schedule look like for you to make sure that you're able to do all the things that you do? And you run two businesses. You run, you run WorkBrighter and you run your content marketing agency. So I'm very curious, how do you make sure that you are getting stuff done and honoring what you need for your health? Very, very minimalist, essentialist point of view around my businesses. Um, like I said, I used to hustle constantly. I was, I think at my worst, you know, the kind of at my point that my, at the point that my body said enough, uh, I was working at my day job, maybe 60 hours a week, and then also working maybe 40 hours a week um, on my side hustles. So I was putting in so many hours. I was actually doing more in my businesses probably then than I was now. Like, I think I actually 
took on more client projects when I was a side hustler than I do now because I just had no concept of limit. I would just do as much as possible as fast as possible. And now I've just really built things intentionally around my strengths. So one thing, for example, is that I'm not technically uh, an agency for BrittanyBurger.com because I know my strengths. I know from being a manager and a team leader on the departments at my day job, not my favorite thing. And that, you know, like managing an agency wouldn't be something I liked. I also know that with my autism, socializing is one of the absolutely most draining activities I can do. And that running an agency would have made that like my primary job. And so it's it's really hard because focusing on repurposing, the first few years I was in business, there was no agency that specialized in content repurposing. I think there are a few now, but like it was so hard not to go after that opportunity when I saw it was right there. And it was like, but I just made the conscious effort that instead of actually doing the repurposing and the remixing for for the brands, which I knew I could only handle so much of and would require a lot of the most draining types of work for me, I would instead teach them and create tools and templates and stuff like that to do it instead. Knowing that it was going to take a little bit more time to grow, knowing that my company would never really be as big as it maybe could be, but it's still going to serve what I need it to do. I want to talk more about content mixing. So Brittany, you said something that I think the audience won't know. At BrittanyBurger.com, a key unique selling proposition is this idea of remixing, repurposing content. Can you share that, what that is and how that impacts how you do things and also how uh, you work with clients? Sure. So um, when I came up in the content marketing industry, the kind of goal was to publish as much content as possible. Kind of all of the content marketing leading blogs back then were publishing like every day, if not multiple times per day. And that was kind of seen as just the goal to get to, despite the fact that they were a publicly traded company with hundreds and hundreds of employees and literally an entire office building just for their content team. And, you know, there were all these small businesses looking up to them and saying, I want to do that too. And I distinctly remember getting hired for um, the job that I worked at the longest, you know, like asking for my content inspiration. And I named this company. And that was one of the reasons that they wanted to talk to me because I, they loved that company too. And so it was just everyone wanted to publish as much as possible. But that is not sustainable. Point of diminishing returns, as I mentioned before, that exists with content. For all that we talk about evergreen content, evergreen content that just stays alive and relevant forever doesn't really exist. Like any plant, even an evergreen plant, still needs like nurturing. It still needs like food and water. And so I like to say that like the content equivalent of that is like, updates and distribution. And so people spend so much time now creating content and trying to just push out so much content that they're forgetting all of these other important parts of the content marketing process. And so content remixing is about taking um, a more of a holistic and repurposing first approach to content where your number one focus isn't creating, it is using. Can you share an example of how that looks like in your business? How do you content and remix a piece of maybe, I, I don't know, a social media post or whatever that you can think of that would be a great example? Sure. So right now I'm playing a little bit with my newsletter process. So my newsletter is 
a weekly newsletter and it's kind of a curated approach, but I add a lot of commentary. And so it is five different sections um, and they're usually about 200 words each. And they're kind of just thoughts and takeaways from someone else's piece of content. And so what I am now starting to do is I am writing those during the week and tweeting them as tweet threads. Then I am kind of condensing it into a paragraph to create a section for the newsletter. And then so that all, so the Twitter stuff happens before the newsletter gets published. Then after the newsletter is published, I publish like a highlight of what was featured this week on Instagram. And then that goes through it again. And so it's just kind of taking this iterative approach to content. Um, the reason I use the phrase content remixing is because I really look at the entertainment industry and specifically the music industry as an inspiration for it a lot because they are brilliant at getting the most out of content, whether it is sampling or remixing or remastering mastering or creating live versions, touring, stuff like that. And so I, um, yeah, so I really like looking at the entertainment industries for metaphors of how to get more out of your content, because uh, the way I see it in the entertainment industry, content is the product, like a song, a movie, a book that is content. And since their content is the product, uh, they have become really efficient at squeezing the most ROI as possible out of it. Did you know that I have a free team growth roadmap? Imagine if you didn't spend all day, every day in the weeds of running your business. That can mean more flexibility, more freedom, less overwhelm. I created the team growth roadmap to help my clients gain direction on the strategic systems and leadership actions for a streamlined business and a self-managing team to grow your business. Inside the roadmap, I share my compass method, an acronym for each step of the roadmap to get you out of the weeds of running your business and help you have a small but mighty team that gives you more freedom and flexibility. You can get all the details over at AudreyJoyQuan.com. That's A-U-D-R-E-Y-J-O-Y-K-W-A-N.com or click the link in the show notes right there in your podcast app. Back to the show. Before we jumped into this call, you had mentioned that when you have a piece of content that performs really, really well, that you are okay with scheduling it over and over again. And I think that I, I identified with uh, this idea of how that to me feels scary because I think, oh my gosh, someone's going to know, they're going to see that I've published something twice or maybe three times. And I love what you said in response to that. And I think you had alluded to this idea that, well, for the most part, your audience is not going to see everything that we post all the time, right? And can you speak more more about that? Because I think I can see our audience hesitate with this idea of having one great piece of content and reposting over and over again and not wanting to do that because there's this internal thought or internal fear that people are going to be like judging them for posting the same thing over and over again. Yeah, so first of all, to talk about the reach part of it, yeah, I mean, we, we know that social media reach is horrible. And for the record, it's not the algorithm's fault. It is just because of the more content climate. Even before algorithms were how newsfeed was prioritized, like I would remember I would go into Instagram and I would scroll and scroll for 10 minutes. And like, and when they were in chronological order, I would still only get to images from like an hour ago. So that was still a ton of content that I wasn't seeing. The algorithms were not the problem with reach. The amount of content on these platforms is the problem with reach. 
And so if something is really relevant to your brand, you have to and you're only and you're only getting what 5% of your audience seeing it each time you post, you want to post it again and again so that different 5% chunks can see it because it's not going to be the same people seeing it every time. Uh, plus your audience is growing. Uh, so there are also people that will follow you this next time it comes up in the newsfeed that weren't following you last time. And then also one thing that it's really done for me that I feel like most people would think the opposite is that it's helped me really hone my brand message. You know, like I share my Instagram quote that says rest is work over and over and over again. And now everyone that follows me kind of knows like that it's seen as like a motto for work brighter now. Mm -hmm. So especially when you have pieces of content that really hone in on and really get across your messaging well, reposting it just like helps people better associate that messaging with you. So the repetition actually works in your favor. I mean, like if you're posting the same post once a week, then yes, that is noticeably repetitive. But Mm -hmm. if it's like, you know, the way that, you know, the rest is work graphic works, it's like every two months that graphic pops up in my followers feed, reminds them of that and reminds them that that is the work brighter ethos. Let's talk about rest is work. <laughs> I I want to know when someone when someone asks you to explain what you mean by that, how do you go about it? So really just rest is a job that your body and brain need to do. We think of rest as doing nothing, but like when we look at the neuroscience and just the general science of all of it, of what's going on in our brains and bodies when we are resting, when we're sleeping, when we're healing, it is doing so much. And that was something that really helped me uh, as someone who struggles with chronic illness because I always kind of struggled with not quote unquote doing work when I was sick. I would always try to at least get a little bit of admin done or something like that. I, I felt that I was just doing nothing if I was laying in bed sick, but saying that, oh, my my job as a human is to try to be as healthy as I can. And for me, that will never be very healthy. And I've accepted that. But still to manage things as best as I can, and that my body needs to be able to focus on these certain reparative and healing tasks sometimes, then like, when I'm sick, my job is to get my butt in bed and stay there. I think that as as a business owner, this idea for me that rest is work is a difficult one in part because oftentimes when we think of resting, the other part of our brain is thinking about the to-do list uh, in our brain and considering that, you know, think about how it's getting longer as we're resting. Uh, with that in mind, what are some um, systems or processes that you have shared with other business owners on on what they can put in place to get that 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 sense of rest when there is a lot going on and how they can just gain more mental health and self-care when there is a business that they still need to run with, all these things that they need to juggle at the same time. This actually brings up another great Insta quote that I post over and over and (laughs) over again, and that's that systems are self-care. They can be used for self-care, especially when you're a workaholic like I was. It can be really hard to kind of deprioritize work and kind of get yourself to view work as less important and stop using all of the systems that make it so easy to think about what work needs to be done. And so instead of kind of trying to change that, I reprioritized health and I systemized health. And so instead of just having work tasks on my to-do list, I also had health tasks 
tasks on my to-do list. And so like, for example, if I have get seven hours of sleep on my to-do list and I only sleep for six hours at night, then I can't cross that off and I need to make time for an hour to nap. And so it's kind of taking the taking the way that I recognize my brain is so messed up and just like saying, you know what, we're going to change this slowly and we're just going to trick it at first. Um, So kind of just tricking my brain. If it's addicted to crossing things off my to-do list, then I'm going to make sure the right tasks are on that to-do list. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I am addicted to crossing things yeah. off my to-do list. Like I get a high every time I check off something on my to-do list. And what you're what you're suggesting here is if that's what gives you pleasure, then why don't you add the things that are health related to the checklist? And I've never thought of that. I've never thought of putting down seven hours of sleep as something to check yeah, off. I, have, I love that. I have that. I have taking my meds. I have drinking AM water and PM water um, to get my two kind of water bottles full a day. Checking in with my therapist is on it. Yeah. So I just really systemize all of the self-care tasks I need to do. And I try to make them part of recurring habits instead of like one-off tasks as much as possible. Like I'm a bit, I'm not a big fan of big batching and instead like small batching. So for example, like I batch email, but instead of doing it like once a week, I do it for like a little bit every day or like with content creation, like instead of trying to create a whole quarter's worth of content at a time or something, I just create a week's worth of content at a time. So that way it is a weekly routine. Yeah, I I think that personally, I, I'm a weekly batcher as well too. So I use a batch for a week or two week ahead. The idea of like batching content for like a month seems really overwhelming to me too. So I, I hear you. There, you know, people talk about batching a lot, and I, your perspective on it is very unique because I think what you're saying is that you don't have to batch like everyone else either. Like some people suggest, oh, you need to batch the whole month, but hey, if that overwhelms you, batch for two weeks. That's okay, batch for a week. the The goal is not to overwhelm yourself, but to find something that feels doable for you. Exactly. Like I feel like a lot of people look at batching as like kind of a contest of who can do the biggest batch at once, and that's an <laughs> another hustle it's another hustle culture thing like they attach like moral value to doing as big a batches as possible but there's actually a chapter in um the book the lean startup about how important it is to find the right size batch for your business and for that specific process because if your systems and if the rest of your business aren't in the right shape for it huge batches can actually be really bad for you. One way that I thought about this a lot the past year or so like that is that we I, I follow a lot of entrepreneurs who talk about how they batch all of their videos or blog posts for the year at once. And I was thinking about them a lot in t- March 2020. Right. How many highly produced fully edited, all outsourced videos uh, that they just like had to trash because it wasn't relevant and things like that. <laughs> That's such a good point. I think when you when you batch for a year, you're not accounting for cultural shifts exactly. or environmental shifts. And I think, yeah, the pandemic COVID was definitely an indication of that. In fact, even in the podcast industry, you saw people who may not have been batching for a year's content, but were batching the quarter. They had to come in and <laughs> revise and re-record. And, and you can see these podcasts, these podcasters are coming in here and they're like, okay, we had something planned and this is the new plan now. Yeah. Um, and it, it would be really funny. You'd hear like the note at the 
beginning and was like, you're you're going to hear us reference seeing each other, but we promised this was recorded for because um, people were also so right. scared. But yeah, that's that's a great example. And then just also like allowing for business shifts too. Like what if you were to batch six months of content and then three months in, you decide to pivot your business in a huge way? That's so true. I, I like I mentioned, I do, I do batch in one or two week timeframes, and sometimes a month at most. I do find that, like, I, I do like to speak to things that are happening in the environment, and I find that when I do batch, I. I, I may have space, like, like let's say, for example, I batch content for my emailers, right? And I do one emailer a week. And so I have an idea every month of what the theme of the emailer is. Typically in a month, I may do three emailers, but I leave one open because I want to have that sense of freedom to write whatever I want as well. And that's honoring for my brain because sometimes when we follow like a really strict schedule, especially when I write emailers, I feel just too stiff. And so I love in my batching to be like, okay, I have this one week where I can just do whatever I want. And that gives me this sense of, I don't know what you call it. Freedom. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, right? Freedom and flexibility. And that that to me feels like it's not hustling, right? Because at the same time, like you mentioned, the idea of batching for a year feels like really hard hustle to me. Yeah. It's like, now I've got to think if I'm doing four newsletters and there are 52 weeks, so I'm doing 52 newsletters in one year. And am I supposed to get that done in two days? I can't imagine doing that in exactly. two days. And that's that's hustle for me. Yeah, exactly. And in Work Brighter, we have a methodology called practical planning. And it really teaches how so many people kind of look at planning really far out into the future in a way that's just to avoid taking action on stuff closer up, you know, like procrastinate planning. So the practical planning method is about what I call progressive planning. And it's about the farther out you go, number one, the less detail there is. And number two, the more flexible it is. And to also build and part of the process also includes building in buffer time um, and just, you know, treating things as flexible in the first place in case something comes up that, yeah, you do want to, you know, inject something like that. Um, so a lot of times with my content marketing consultants, what we usually do is like do the same thing with our content calendars where like we leave one spot open a month. It's like any product updates that we need to do announce, you know, like it'll go there. Um, and we also do the same type of thing with a slot for updating old content to make sure again, that we're not like letting the evergreen content plant babies um, wither and die. Tell us a little bit more about what you're working on in your businesses right now. Okay. So we just wrapped up a promotion for the Work Brighter membership, the Work Brighter Clubhouse. And so we're going to be working on some big updates behind the scenes before it opens again and really just niching down to a membership that is specifically for helping disabled neurodivergent chronically ill, mentally ill people. It's kind of funny that it's always, it's kind of always been that way. Um, but, oh, I didn't even finish my sentence. Helping them better balance their work, play and rest and kind of their their productivity and their self-care. But it, it's always been that. It always has. At any given time, at least like 70% of the membership would identify as one of those four things. But I never really like called it out. And it was never really positioned around that. When I first started the membership, I was also, I wasn't as far along on this work writer journey myself. And so I, back then when I launched it, I kind of realized that 
the productivity rules weren't for me and a lot of other people felt it wasn't for them. And so this membership brought us all together. But I've since then realized the the point about how hustle culture stuff is really exclusive to people with brains and bodies that are outside what's expected. And so it was just kind of, I didn't realize back then that the reason all of these people couldn't follow, including myself, couldn't follow the productivity rules was because of our brains and bodies. So now that I realize that I'm working on updating like the branding and the structure of the community a little bit, adding affinity groups and things like that. So that's what I'm really excited about for Work Brighter. And then in BrittanyBurger.com, I am finally working on like a big signature course, hopefully coming out by the end of the year. I procrastinated it for a while just because I knew it wouldn't be a small project, having been in content marketing for a decade now. But I also made sure that I was still making progress. So what I kind of decided when I created my business full time, this is another work brighter thing, small hops over big leaps, that instead of creating a course right away, I was going to do like a few workshops a year. And that would help me like hone the curriculum and how I wanted to teach things. And so I've been doing these smaller workshops and I finally feel that like I've figured out the curriculum enough to put it all together into some sort of more final thing. Yeah, it sounds like you're testing the bits and pieces to make sure that people are getting value out of it. And once you see the value come through, then you're adding it to the course, which is a smart way to build a course, right? Because no one takes a course unless the course works. And the only way you know it works is to test the pieces that are in it. Yeah, and like I've done beta courses for larger courses before and just the amount of content creation at one time, even if it was a beta, more casual form, um, it still just, it burnt me out. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. like I did, I have a workshop on content planning, a workshop on content writing, and a workshop and template for content remixing. And so I'm going to just kind of combine them all and fill in the gaps. Nice. I have to ask you a question and you let me know if, like, I don't even know if this is an appropriate (laughs) question. You mentioned mentioned the word neurodivergent. I am not familiar with that word. And is that a word that people use? Or is that something that is your word? Can you share a bit more about that? I don't want to like, I don't, I'm not careful in using word. the words. Um, I don't know. Not my word. I wish someone very smart came up with that word. So that is just kind of the, the word being given right now to the larger collection of mental illnesses, personality, things, stuff like that, that are really come down to the brain being wired different than what was typically expected and studied and kind of what you would see in a science book. So like in the past, we would have called it, you know, like disordered, but calling it neurodivergent kind of recognizes that, that, you know, these these different wirings aren't necessarily wrong or bad. They're just Mm -hmm. different from what we've studied before. And so it's kind of like uh, brain works not fully as expected or whatever that label on um, products says. Yeah, I I'm hearing you speak, and I you know I'm I, I'm comparing the word disordered versus neurodivergent, and it's very clear the word neurodivergent is way more honoring and true to what's really happening because it's diverging from the neural path that we see or call normal, right? And I think as we I think as we as we progress as a society forward, this term normal, air quoting the term normal right now, doesn't truly exist. Exactly. Yeah. And one other thing that I love about the term neurodivergence is that it calls, I feel like it calls attention to the fact that only certain types 
of people have been studied. Like one reason it was so hard for me to get an ADHD diagnosis, and I don't even have an official autism diagnosis yet, partially for the same reason, is because the systematic exclusion of women and people with other disabilities aside from these two things in the study of these two things. So when I was growing up with ADHD, girls literally weren't even included in the studies. They had no idea how it could present in people who aren't boys. It just, it literally was never even considered. And I feel like saying, neurodivergent or like, you know, saying like, oh, this is what's typically been studied, but that's not all there is. Yeah. I want to speak into that. And I think that's because ADHD, there's a hyper element to that, right? And I think when you think of boys and girls, typically boys, they the hyperactivity comes out and is easier to identify when they're kids, right? And I think for girls, there's less of the hyperactivity that presents itself. And that's why for girls, it's hard to get that diagnosis when they are at that younger age. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's also social factors. One thing that people are talking a lot right now is how much autism and ADHD are diagnosed based on quote unquote symptoms that are really how you impact the lives of the neurotypical people around you. It's not based on like how you feel or how you think. It's based on how you present to other people. But yeah, so that's another thing. And and so women from such a young age are just taught to like behave that mm-hmm. that, you know, the observational type of diagnosis isn't accurate because girls are taught from such a young age that like they have to sit still. So even if their if their brain is going a million miles a minute like mine was, even if my foot was jiggling and my fingers were twiddling, I wasn't up and moving around, but that's just because I wasn't supposed to be. And I knew I had to follow mm-hmm. rules and the autism wouldn't mm-hmm. let me not do that. Brittany, I really love that you've created a community work brighter that honors people who are neurodivergent. And I think what's amazing is that it's being led by someone who has gone through the corporate world and realized that it's not for them and understood why it's not for them. And now what you're doing is you're helping others navigate that space. So I, I love what you're doing. And I am so excited that we had this chance to chat on the podcast today. I'd love to ask you, this is my last question. Actually, there's two questions. This is my second to last question. What keeps you inspired right now? Right now, 90s sitcoms. Almost <laughs> always, but like even more than usual. Um, two shows that I have been re-watching lately at night with my partner are The Nanny and Just Shoot Me. And oh man, this is so good. <laughs> and where can people find you? They can find me at that Bieberg on Twitter or workbrighter.co or Brittanyberger.com. Love it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Small But Mighty Agency podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. Or send a screenshot on Instagram while tagging me at Audrey Joy Kwan.